If you look at the people around you, what do you see? Yes, they are all unique, but what do you have in common with them? <laughs> Laughter, yes. What else? In this podcast, you will hear the voice of people who by choice or by obligation have moved to a different place. Expats, migrants, refugees, we all learn from our journey. What makes us feel we belong? What are our struggles to fit in? Who are the perfect strangers for us? If I spoke to anyone, they thought I came from Mars. I never expected to have such a culture shock when I'm, I moved here. And uh, for many years, the Americans were just a mystery to me. These are all stories about being human, about self-discovery and bonding. Welcome to Perfect Strangers. In this episode, you will hear Arlette's story. The kids were terrible uh, to me because, of course, I was a stranger and I spoke Spanish. And so that was a source of a lot of laughter. Of course, he was dead. But as she said, I needed to be near something that was familiar because there was nothing familiar about the United States to her. She was born in Cuba from a single mother who escaped World War II France. So, are you ready to hear her story? Arlette, we are going to begin with your childhood. Sure. I don't know if you want to introduce yourself saying, you know, where you came from, where you were born, or you sure. ended up in the United States. Okay, so I can start even with my name because I was born Arlette Jacqueline Montezinos. And Montezinos was my mother's name. It is an old Spanish and Portuguese name from the 12th century. I was born in Havana, Cuba, because my mother was escaping Hitler. She was on a boat in May 1942 that left Marseille, went first to Mexico City, of Mexico, and then went to all the islands in the Caribbean, and none of them would allow them, uh, the people to disembark. And eventually they wound up in Cuba, and the Cubans were going to send them back. But um, the boat was allowed to land, and the people got off. They were all put into a detention camp called a Tascornia camp. I have heard that those people in that Tascornia camp all seemed to have relatives in Cuba. So they were taken out of the camp very quickly, within a couple of days. My mother had no relatives there, and so she lingered. She was, at that time, almost nine months pregnant with me. And she was 41 at the time, and it was her first and only pregnancy. And it was also July in Cuba, and there was no air conditioning. And she likes to say that they were allowed two Coke bottles of water every day. That was it. And you could do with it whatever you want. You could drink, you could brush your teeth, you could bathe. That was the water allotment. Well, she had a very rich brother in the United States who was an industrial diamond dealer. And he made a lot of money during the war selling industrial diamonds. He got her out of that camp. So I was born in a military hospital in Havana. And then from there, we moved to an apartment. And there was a lovely nurse, Marta, who took care of me. 
And then my uncle died when I was eight months old and the money stopped. This was our support, this very rich diamond dealer. He was our sole support. And suddenly he died. And according to the authorities in this country, he died without a will. And so my mother was not entitled to a single penny of the estate. On top of that, they said that he had never paid any taxes for all the years, and that's possible, that he lived in this country, he might not have paid taxes. So they just said, well, we'll just take the entire estate and we'll just call it even. And my mother left me in Cuba when I was 18 months old uh, with my nurse. Uh, she came to America to fight this incredible theft of her inheritance. And she came to this country having never worked really in her life. And she was then uh, 41, almost 42. And she gets a job as a secretary to, it was the Dutch consul in exile because the Nazis really were in charge of Holland at the time. Mm -hmm. And she worked for this man. And this is uh, appropriate for the Me Too generation now. And my mother said, and he was a wonderful boss and she made good money and she sent it back to Cuba uh, so that we could live, Marta and I. Until one day he said, come to my apartment I have serious dictation to do. Uh, come tomorrow. I know it's Sunday, but I'll pay you double. So my mother said she was so excited to get more money, and she had her stenography pad. You can imagine where this is going. And she comes to this beautiful apartment building, and she rings the doorbell, and he opens the door, and he's stark naked. And my mother said, no. And she turned around and ran down the hall. When she came to work the next day, which was Monday, he fired her. That was it. And that was the end of her great job. And after that, she had lousy jobs. So she worked uh, alone in this country, and I stayed in Cuba for 18 months. She eventually got a visa for me right after the war ended in 1945. And that's a beautiful story because she couldn't convince anyone in her synagogue to sponsor me. In those days, you needed a sponsor. And nobody would sponsor me because here she is, a woman alone, absolutely penniless, with a child. Who wants to take on that responsibility and obligation? Nobody. So my mother was an artist, and she was taking life drawing classes at night after work in Greenwich Village. And one night, this is a story that she told me and her teacher, that he both told me this story when I grew up, she started to cry at her easel. And Bill Fisher, who was the teacher, said, why are you crying, Lisa? And she told him, my daughter is in Cuba and I have no way of bringing her back. And he said, well, why not? And she said, because no one will sponsor her. And Bill Fisher said, oh, I'll sponsor her. I have nothing. I am an artist and this is my girlfriend. She'll sponsor her also. And so the two of them signed the documents to sponsor me. And then my mother could apply for a visa. She wrote a letter to Eleanor Roosevelt because everyone wrote to Eleanor Roosevelt <laughs> if they had a problem. This woman was like Mother Teresa. She was like the Virgin Mary. She was every extraordinary woman in immigrants' eyes. I don't know how Americans thought of her, but immigrants thought of her as a savior who could solve any problem. And so my mother wrote her a letter never expecting any answer, because she knew everyone wrote to her, until she got a cable saying, would you come to Washington, D.C., um, to the INS on, so, on such a date? 
And my mother tells a story that she had to borrow money from people in the hotel where she lived to buy a new hat and a pair of gloves because you couldn't go to Washington in an old crumbly hat and dirty gloves. Remember, this is 1945. And my mother was very proper, in a manner of speaking. So she went (laughs) to the office. She's shown a letter, and it's her letter that she wrote to Mrs. Roosevelt. And in the margin is written in handwriting, can't you do something for this woman? E-R. And my mother said, E-R? And the man said, yes, Eleanor Roosevelt. And so my mother got my visa. Shortly thereafter, she came to Cuba and she brought me to America. We lived uh, in one room in a hotel that actually still exists. It is in the theater district. And why did my mother choose such a place? This is not where a woman who has a young child, I was three and a half, would bring. It makes no sense. But it was two blocks from her brother's office. Of course, he was dead. But as she said, I needed to be near something that was familiar because there was nothing familiar about the United States to her. So she there was, was Dutch. no family, nobody in New York. There was. There were cousins. Remember what I said, nobody wanted to be responsible. And my mother was not very nice to her cousins. And I think that goes back to Holland. And they weren't very nice to her. There was no great love of family here. I I, I can speculate why, but my mother was difficult. So we lived in this hotel room, but it wasn't a great place to raise a little girl. There was no child care. My mother had to go to work. She would drag me with her. And what would I do all day, right? Make noise, jump around, go crazy. Her boss was very nice, but that lasted about a week. And then he said, you have to do something with her. And there was no child daycare at that time. So my mother asked in the synagogue, where she was a very devoted congregant, if there was uh, something they could suggest. And they suggested a foster home in Connecticut. It was (laughs) awful. Uh, The woman, whose name was Aunt Helen, had a number of children, all of her own, a lot of children. She lived in the country. That part was very nice. But the kids were terrible uh, to me because, of course, I was a stranger. And are they going to be nice to me? No. Uh, And I spoke Spanish. And so that was a source of a lot of uh, laughter. And the woman, Aunt Helen, refused to give me milk unless I asked for it in English. And I remember standing in her kitchen at age three and a half, looking up at her, and I saw the milk in her hand, and I said, that woman wants me to say milk and not the real word, which is leche. So I said, milk, and she gave me milk. And at that moment, I despised her because she didn't love my language. But you, you spoke French with your mother? Or? That was later. My uh, first language was Spanish from but, Cuba. But you, with your mother? No, she never spoke Spanish. So you spoke French? Or? So when I was five, my mother decided that there was only one civilized language in this world, and that was French. Everything else was okay or awful. And so this was, this was the rule. When we went into the subway, we had to speak French. When we left the subway, we could speak whatever language I wanted to speak. But it's French in the subway. So that's how I learned French, in the yes. subway, yes. <laughs> you remember leaving Cuba? Uh, I remember actually the day we left, yes. 
that I remember, and getting on a Pan American flight airplane. This was a lovely plane. At the back, there was a table with food on it. <laughs> But at that time, I mean, you nurse, I mean, your nurse. No, yeah, you she the, didn't come the, with me, yeah. But that was like your mother, because your mother was in the United States. So yeah. you had to leave her, you remember that? It was very hard. She, I called her Mia Madre Colorada. She was my colored mother. And she always was. I, and I would introduce her to my friends as this is Mia Madre Colorada. And they, everyone understood. She wasn't my housekeeper. She wasn't my babysitter. She wasn't my nurse. She was my mother because she took care of me <laughs> seven days a week. And we didn't always get along. <laughs> But, you know, three and a half year olds can be very strong willed. So But, then, I mean, after you lived for a very short while in New York with your yeah, mother, and she decided yeah. to send you to Connecticut. Yeah. What was your feeling? Do you remember something? Did she explain to you? Or? She said that, uh, no, I don't remember what she said, but I remember she was gone. And uh, how awful it was there, because I had to sleep in a crib that was too short for me. And so my legs got the most terrible cramps. And my mother came for a visit. I don't know how long after I was there. I have no idea. Uh, but I, she let me sleep in her bed with her. And it was the first night I could stretch out. And I told her that it was awful sleeping in that crib and that the children were terrible to me and they teased me. And then she decided she was going to bring me back. But she had signed papers. She couldn't just bring me back. It was legal, she said. And this is a story she told. When she went back to New York... She went to Horn and Hardart, which is a place where you would get food that was in little boxes on the wall. And you put a nickel in, and you could get pie, a sandwich, whatever you want for a nickel, 10 cents maybe it cost, wonderfully cheap. And that's where she ate. She had very little money. And once again, she started crying in public. <laughs> and a man sat next to her and asked her what the story was. And she said, my daughter, I can't bring her back. They won't let her go. And he said, well, I'm a lawyer. I can help you. And so they talked. And my mother said, but I can't pay you. It'll be years before I can pay you because I have no money. He said, well, if you can make, give me dinner tonight and the train ticket, I will go with you. But you need to know I'm disbarred. And my mother said, yeah. what's disbarred? He said, well, I'm technically, I'm not a lawyer anymore, but we don't have to tell them that. <laughs> so, <laughs> my mother got this disbarred lawyer, <laughs> and I remember them showing up. And I don't know what he said, of course, but I remember my mother told me that he said in very strong legalese that he was representing my mother and that he had uh, documents that proved that um, she was my uh, lawful guardian and Uh, they were taking me home, and that was that. I never, we never saw him again. Maybe my mother paid him. I don't know, but he rescued me from that awful But place. How come that in New York, uh, with the Jewish community, they wouldn't have in place something to help families in this case with people who had to work and they had small children? So was you know, I don't know what my mother's relationship was uh, that, that Jewish community, honestly. Mm -hmm. But I do know that when I came back. She said, we went on charity. So she must have contacted them. She must have talked to the synagogue. I don't know who. But they gave us a stipend. And that's what we lived off until I could go to school. My mother said those were the years that she wore slacks. Because every morning we would get up, we'd get on the bus, and we'd go to Central Park. And that's where we spent the day. 
there was, there was so little money, I'll tell you, that to take the bus from 44th Street to 60th Street, say that's where the zoo was, we always mm-hmm. went around there in the 60s, it cost seven cents. However, if you wanted to take the double-decker bus, which I loved because I could sit up, that was 10 cents. Now, this was the finances of the time. Either we took the regular bus both ways, 14 cents, or the double-decker bus one way, and we had to walk the other way. So then you remember when you began school? Sure. I went to something called the, it was called the Manhattan Day School. But I know the Manhattan Day School and other day schools are strictly, they're like yeshivas. They're very, very strict. And so for three hours a day, uh, you learn Hebrew. And then three hours a day, you learn English. And in between is lunch and recess. And it was uh, very orthodox. So I learned all the blessings and I learned Hebrew very quickly because at this point, Hebrew was my fourth language right? Spanish, French, English, Hebrew. It was, a, it was a piece of cake because your brain, the child's brain, is so adaptable to language if you start early. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in that school for three years. The hard part was getting there and getting home. So in the morning, my mother's job was on Wall Street. This school was on 103rd. And wow, my mother, 103rd. 103rd. Direct- opposite direction. Yeah. So this is what we did after the first day. The first day she took me. But by the second day she said, now Arlette, you know what to do. Oh wow. I will take you down the stairs and you will get on the train and get off at 103rd. And so from the time I was very little, I rode the subway by myself. Sometimes it was terrible because men would show themselves to me. Ugh, I was always just terrified but no one ever did anything other than just, you know, unzipper their pants. That was it. <laughs> it's fine. They, they, were, they, were, they were exhibitionists. Exhibitionists, yes, yeah. yeah they, they weren't rapists. And in the school, did you blend easily with the other kids? <laughs> blend? Blend? Although all the children, honestly, had parents, for the most part, who came from other countries. And we all were immigrants. But they came from homes that were intact. They had a father, a mother, and often siblings, more people, and they all rode the bus to school. I would have given anything to ride that bus. I would have gone to the wrong neighborhood (laughs) to ride that bus. It looked like so much fun. I had to trudge off to the the subway. Well, this is how my mother managed in the, the first year, well, the first few months, that she would come and get me. No, she didn't get me from school. This is why I just, my memories got a little confused. She would wait for me at 42nd Street when I got off the subway. Often I would get to school late because she got up late and by the time I got, I had breakfast and got to the, it was her fault, I was a little kid. And one day they kept me. They wouldn't let me go home until she came to get me. And I remember being hysterical in the principal's office. I got on my knees and I said, my mother is waiting for me. What will happen? She won't know where I am. And eventually she showed up. I guess she must have called them. Where's my daughter? And she showed up and they, I guess they had a talk and said, you can't send her home by herself on the subway. She's six. And so she arranged for a cousin who lived two blocks away 
to take to have me come home with them because he they had a, a, two kids in the school. Now, why she didn't do this before, I don't know. And um, that's where I was for three years after school. It was fine. So was then, you, did you? I mean, what was the most difficult for you? Was the fact that your mother was single? That you know you had this background, this mixed background of languages, and what was so, the most difficult part for you? I was so different from everyone else. Uh, my mother was very cultured, very cultured. She loved the opera, the ballet, museums, art, literature, poetry. And honestly, the parents of the kids that I knew had none of that because my mother had been wealthy when she was in Holland. The whole family had been in diamonds for a couple of hundred years. These children, their folks were hard workers. They, they worked at all kinds of menial jobs, but they were not cultured. So if I spoke to anyone, they thought I came from Mars. <laughs> I had no, there was no lingua franca. I mean, it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. I didn't really have any friends for the first three years of my life. None. Because there was nothing to share. What mm -hmm. could I say? And I, no one ever invited me home for play date or a sleepover or anything. And I, I couldn't invite anyone to my one, the one little room we lived in. The room was so small. It was My mother had her bed and I had a cot. And that was it. And then there were walls. And we used the window outside to cool the milk. And we had a little hot plate uh, for so you soup. So you didn't feel like part of a community? It's not that then on, on Saturdays you would go to the same synagogue? Or... That's the thing. We went to the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue. There was nobody at this school. This was all, you know, the Jews are divided in two parts, Ashkenazim and Sephardim. Ashkenazim make up the bulk of Jews that came to this country mm -hmm. from all the Eastern European countries, including Germany and Lithuania and Romania and Russia, and you name the country. They are the ones who settled yes. here. And the Sephards, there were some, but well, none in the school that I went to, absolutely none. And so there was, even in synagogue, even for the Jewish holidays, the melodies that I sang were different from the melodies the kids oh. sang. Everything was so different. So even that was different. So I mean, there was nothing that we. There was no commerce at all. That was, and I didn't know if I felt bad or good about it. I couldn't feel too badly because this was my mother, and there was nobody else. And you can't really cut that tie mm -hmm. if you have no one to turn to. Of course. Until I got older, and of course, when I was in high school, I could do it, but not before. So after these three years in that school, then yeah. you changed school? My mother got some of her uh, brother's estate. And so suddenly, I, could, I went to a different school. So she managed to win something? She did. She did. Nah. Most, of the, most of the estate was gone, mm -hmm. but she got a little bit. Enough so that we left the hotel and we moved to Park Avenue. We lived in one, one room. Again, my mother only liked one room. That's what she liked. I don't know why. So we slept in one room, but she had decorators come and create a space that you could live in during the day and do everything. It was beautiful. And then at night, you could sleep in it. And then there was a small kitchen. It was our first kitchen. And then a little dressing room and a bathroom. And I thought it was paradise. It was unbelievable. And then I went to a different school. I went to professional children's school to become a ballerina 
four, met four hours a day from 10 a.m. to 2 in the afternoon. That was it. And the reason it started so late is because most of the children who went there were in productions. And so they would get to bed late. That was it. I was in no production, ever. I was not a successful professional child. It was child. your wish or your mother? So, that so when I was five, along with going, being with my mother um, in the park, we also started ballet lessons with uh, a woman whose name I never forgot, Olga Tarasova. And Ooh, my mother also... Strict. Yes, strict Russian. And Olga said uh, that my mother had to pay. You know, and my mother said, oh, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> but when I get my money, I will pay you. And she did. She paid Olga. She paid the school I had been going to. She paid everyone because she had, that was her word. Um, and they just had to wait a few years. But Olga taught me right from left, and she taught me uh, enough ballet so that I could go to the American School of Ballet. When I, um, and that was a wonderful school. But going there, I had class every day. And I, I studied ballet, and I was wanting... That's what I wanted. I wanted to be a ballerina. That's all I wanted to be. How long did you stay in that cool, school? Yeah, I stayed until I was 10. And that, did you feel that you were able to blend much better in that school? Because um, there were dance in common or it was still difficult for it you? It was still difficult for one reason, that the girls my age were in the lower grades. And you, because the ballet is so snobbish, you don't look at them. And there was nothing like the Nutcracker or any ballets where children could be in. And I was in with the adults who were almost in the company class, but not quite. I was known as little one because I was so young and small, but I could do everything. No, so again, there, there was no community. I had no friends. I had one very good friend at professional children's school, Reed Johnson. Reed and I became great friends, I have to say, <laughs> because her parents also were strange, very strange. They lived in a hotel, but they lived in two rooms. <laughs> and that made a difference. And her mother was the niece of a senator, a United States senator, and she was from Virginia. So again, she and my mother had a sense of class in common. I don't know that they had anything else in common, but a sense of we are better, even though we're poor. You know, although my mother we wasn't poor We know where we come then. from. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That sense of class. So then after this professional school... So you stayed for three years. Where, where did you go after that? After that, well, unfortunately, I developed a hip joint disease when I was older. And um, so I stopped dancing. I had to. And then I told my mother that I didn't need to go to the school anymore because it was pointless. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went to another private school on the east side, Rhodes. It was very nice for one year. And there were three children there who were on scholarship from a public school on the east side. And they were so much fun. They were the hoi polloi, the folks, the volks. And they were terrific. They were just amazing. And I said to my mother, I want to go to school with them <laughs> because they're too much fun. These other kids are really, I didn't use the word anemic, but she understood, bloodless. Uh, So I, the following year, for um, eighth grade, I went to my local public school. <laughs> In this public school, I lasted two months, maybe less, because once again, I, I'm with children who were poor. 
And here I am, I live on Park Avenue, right? And I have all these snobbish ideas. Um, and so after nearly getting knifed, I didn't go back to school the next day and instead transferred to a school on the west side where I met people, girls and boys, who were going to be my friends. They were going to be my friends. And to ensure that they were going to be my friends, I changed my name. I was not Arlette Montezinas anymore. I was going to be Ar Debbie Jessel. And in those days, you didn't have to go to the courts to change your name. You just you went to the teacher and you said, no, no, that's not my name. That's a mistake. <laughs> I, my, 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 we changed my name. And so they figured, well, my mother got married or who knows. And so they changed my name. Debbie for Debbie Reynolds, because I thought she was great. And Jocelle, because that's the name, my father's name. He didn't give it to me. I just took it. <laughs> he simply took it. Debbie Jocelle. So because you wanted to get rid of the Spanish side. The Spanish and the French and everything that was the past where I never fit in. And I made it my business to fit in. And I never spoke French or Hebrew. I never, I, I, I frankly didn't remember Spanish much. I remembered enough Spanish so when the, the Puerto Rican kids would come after me, I knew what was happening. <laughs> But I met a girl who was going to be my best friend uh, forever, really, Marsha Cowell. She was wonderful and she wanted to be a ballet dancer. And we had the best time at Joan of Arc Junior High. So then it was your will, you finally, you wanted finally to fit in and you say, okay, exactly. I take it into my hands to... That's exactly right. Because you needed it. I mean, it's true as a teenager, it's very important. Yes. And now when I look back, maybe I would have accomplished more in my life if I had stayed an outsider. You know, I don't know that. But my goal was to fit in. I was so sick to death of being a bohemian of having a mother whom no one could have a conversation with before she insulted you and screamed at you. And yet she was also extraordinary and marvelous. She was all these things. Yeah, no, I fit in. I fit in with a will. And I, I decided I would have a boyfriend, and I had a boyfriend. That life was so much fun from that time on. Kids go through difficulties from the, you know, the, from puberty on. Mm -hmm. For me, puberty was freedom. It, and my poor mother, she couldn't stop me. She, there was no stopping me. So what happened was after, in junior high, I realized, I found out what the landscape was. Either I would go to the local high school where the girls who tried to knife me went, or I would get into one of the special schools. And so it was my goal to get into a special school, music and art. I took the test, because you have to test into it, and I didn't get in. I, I failed. And the test was you had to draw a telephone, you had to draw a house with a car and a road and some other things. And I realized that my mother, the great artist, I never learned how to draw anything, nothing. I might have loved art and loved dance and loved music and blah, 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 blah. But I was completely unequipped. I couldn't. So I asked my friends who had gotten in, how did you get in? They said, oh, we went to art school. And I found out where the art school was. Uh, and I went there. And I said, I need to come here. And they told me how much it would cost. And I told my mother. And she said, we can't afford it. Because at this point, all the money was gone. We had money for seven years. And then gone. 
we moved and also I went to this art school maybe for four lessons, but that was enough because I understood what I had to do. It's like learning a language. Mm -hmm. You learn it and then I practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced and I made a portfolio that was phenomenal and I got in. So then it was the year after that you went Ninth in? Ninth grade, yeah. Uh, most, most of the kids who were going went in eighth grade, so they mm -hmm. would be there for four years. Yes. I got in in ninth grade and was there for three years. It was wonderful. It was a great school. And I made a lot of friends. People like myself, immigrants, and, in, in, and, and children of very, very, very successful artists. There was such a cohort of educated, cultured children in this school. Uh, and the musicians, because music and art, mm -hmm. the musicians were so good. I really felt that finally I have come to a place that I can be in, and it was great. And then I had to go to college, and there was no money for the um, application fees. You know, you had to pay. Mm -hmm. And there, were no, there was no government grants. Maybe there were scholarships, but my mother didn't know anything, and I didn't know, and they didn't. In the school, they weren't very helpful. They didn't say, oh, we have a guidance counselor who will let us talk to you. You know, <laughs> let's get you a scholarship. Let's do this. Nothing. Because there was such a good city school system, city college Hunter College. These were great institutions, and they were free. So I went to Hunter. And in the meantime, I got married. You were in a hurry. <laughs> I was in a hurry. I wanted, to, I wanted to live life in a way that looked like it would be fun. I was mostly interested in fun, nothing much else. And so I did. I married when I was almost 18, not quite, a boy who was just 21. And why he ever married? You met him in your school? Or? No, he actually had gone to my high school, but he was four years yeah. ahead. I met him in the elevator of the building we moved to. When we <laughs> left Park Avenue, we moved to West End Avenue. And he was in the elevator. <laughs> <laughs> and he was, he was playing the piano, uh, but not in the elevator. And he said to me, and to my, I had, was with my girlfriend, Sylvia, he said, I'm playing the piano in my friend's apartment. Why don't you come and listen? And so the two of us went, and we heard them play. And his friend played um, the drums, uh, and that was how we met. And you married quickly because that's what you would do at that time? Uh, well... Because you, you felt the need to be married and... It, I never felt the need to be married, no. My mother insisted if we were going to live together, this is 1960, that you didn't live with someone in America in 1960 unless you were married. And so she convinced me. Are you think it's, it was also because of her own trauma not to be married? I'm sure of it. She never thought very much of me. <laughs> I mean, she never thought that I could really be successful in life. She really didn't. She didn't think I was as smart as she was, and that may have been true. And she didn't think I was as tough as she was. She was very tough. Uh, she survived. She survived mm -hmm. without help. And so she thought I needed a protector. And she knew she wouldn't be around forever. So that was her thinking, and I guess I went along with it. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the strength of will to say, no, I can manage on my own. I'll be somebody. Don't worry. When I finish college, I'll have a profession. So you married but still went through your studies. Oh, yes. When I was a junior, I got pregnant. That happens, right? <laughs> but thanks to 
my mother, my mother-in-law. I finished, took me a year and a half to finish a year's work. And so I did finish. I got my degree with honors, which was good. Yes. Yeah. I think if I hadn't had a baby, and maybe if I hadn't been married, I might have gone into a different field besides art. Mm -hmm. I might have, because there were other things I loved. I loved science. It was fantastic. I loved art history. I think my, if my mind had been free, as it was, it was so crowded. That's a lot. I mean, and then you have a baby and you're studying and your whole life changed completely. Yeah. And I guess there were not many students like you with a baby. None. None at that time. No, women, when they had children, they dropped out of college. Mm -hmm. That was it. Yeah. But that was, not, that was not an option for me. I was going to finish. I felt that I could do everything. I had so much energy. and I You was, still have. I have not as much. <laughs> not as much. I have some, but not, yeah, not, not, nothing like what I used to have. And I thought I was doing the right thing. I really did. I Just in retrospect, I think things could have been very different if I had not married and not had a child. So, yeah, these are important moments that you don't realize when you are in the moment. That that's right. Define a road that you take or don't take in your life. That's exactly right. You never realize that it's a crossroads yeah. and that there's no going back. Mm -hmm. You never realize it. But at least you knew you wanted to finish your study. That I knew. Because you wanted to be uh, autonomous of your, I mean... What did I want to be? I wanted to just teach art at college. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to do. That's the only... I didn't know anything else, you know. Because we had no circle of families who worked and had professions. Mm -hmm. You know, there were no lawyers, no doctors, no, yeah. no, no businessmen, no accountants. That didn't exist. In high school, there was one man, my girlfriend's father, who was a lawyer. I hardly saw him. I, so the idea that I could be a lawyer was completely out of my brain. Mm -hmm. Your mother loving art and culture maybe was also a natural path for you? It was. It pleased her. Later on, she thought it was stupid. Later on, she did. She said to me, Arlette, become a lawyer. You need a profession. That was already, that was not going to happen. Um, so then you had a daughter and mm -hmm. thinking back of your own childhood, did you have this anxiety of her not being able to blend in? Or so what was your feeling about Ah. Uh, I never worried about her fitting in because she had a normal family. There was money. Not a lot, but enough. Mm. Enough. Didn't have to worry about taking the bus and walking. <laughs> and, there were, and there was family. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there, there were cousins, too. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. There, there were other yes. people. Yeah. yeah, you could. And, I, mean, and I wasn't traumatized the way my mother had been, you know, who lost everything in the war. Uh, it just, it was different. Now, my first husband and I did divorce when he got a job in Chicago. We moved there, and we spent a year in California at Stanford. That was very nice. And then we moved to Chicago, and we got divorced, and that was hard on Bonnie. And I realized, and I decided that I was never going to get in between her and her father, that she was going to have a father even if we were not together. Mm -hmm. And that is the truth. That is exactly how she grew up, very close to him, spent all his vacations with him, and she still does. She still does. And so I think she has not suffered too much. Mm -hmm. And that was my decision because I had friends who were so angry and made their children's lives miserable. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, it's also linked to the fact that you never had a father. Yeah. Sure. So, I mean, 
that's a missing piece for you and you didn't want your daughter to have that. That's exactly right. But then I met Ken, and he wanted to adopt Bonnie so he could be her father. But that wasn't happening. Her father was not giving up, ever. <laughs> and that was hard on Ken, very hard. I went for a master's while we were in Chicago, while I was divorced, before I married Ken, before I knew him, I saw the people. And I got a master's in uh, teaching, because that was something you could actually make a living at. Mm -hmm. So then you managed to finish it in Chicago. You met Ken while you were in Chicago. Sure, yes. He was in Chicago. He was doing his residency. He was a doctor. He was doing his residency there. Mm -hmm. And that's how we met. We, we first moved to Columbia, South Carolina after school because he had to go into the Army. In order to finish his training, he had to promise them that as soon as he was finished, he would go into the Army. And that's what happened. And it coincided with my graduating And so we, perfect, right? Yeah, it did. And so we lived in Columbia, South Carolina for two years. And then he did a fellowship in New York. So then I moved to New York, back home. And I would have gladly stayed, but he hated it. <laughs> he hated it. And so we moved to Washington. Here, I started out teaching at a Georgetown University in their mm -hmm. school for summer and continuing education. And I taught adults. And that was a lot of fun. Watercolor and life drawing. And then the Smithsonian, the same thing. I mean, it was terrific. It didn't pay very much. You know, mm -hmm. It paid very little. Uh, and then I taught one semester um, at Montgomery College, and that paid terribly because that's how they manage. They, mm -hmm. they have a tiny faculty, but they have a huge adjunct, mm -hmm. and they pay the adjuncts nearly yeah. nothing. And so then I went to the public school system, but only part-time so that I could keep a studio and keep making art. And I've always loved teaching art, regardless. Uh, to illuminate somebody or to show them something they've never seen or a way of looking is very satisfying. It really is. So if I say the word perfect stranger, what comes to mind to you? Somebody from Iowa, a red state. My nature is to find common ground uh, with anyone. I always can. That doesn't mean that I avoid the differences. I don't. But I can imagine that a real stranger would be someone who believed what she was told that I did not believe, so that certain science facts we would not be able to agree on, and certain facts about people that we are not different, that we are not enemies of each other. Certain facts about religion, that one religion is superior to another, and that there is danger in difference. These beliefs would definitely define a perfect stranger to me. That's a great definition. If I tell you, you have to invite people to, to have a meal with you, But people you would think they are perfect stranger in a way you have you know nothing about them, but you are curious to, to have them at your table and speak with them. You want to know more. So what kind of people would you invite? I would invite people on the opposite end of the political spectrum. I would invite people who held ideas that maybe I didn't agree with. I might invite someone who was very sold on uh, hip-hop and... Um, certain kinds of music that uh, I don't particularly like, 
But it, I think mainly, I think it would be people like what I described. That, that I, I don't know that I could feed them. It would be, I guess it would be very instructive. I have actually heard people talk who are creationists and who don't believe in um, evolution, and they're people who don't believe in science, evidence-based science, and don't believe in government. I suppose I could learn their point of view. It would be frustrating, though, very frustrating, but I could. <laughs> Let's organize that. <laughs> Let's organize the dinner. <laughs> Um, to, to ask you a final question, what gives you hope in general, you know, with your life experience, with all the people you have met, what for you is a sense of hope for you know, humanity? And, uh... Uh, yeah, so I have great faith in humanity and I have great faith in science. I can imagine that a meteor coming, heading toward Earth would force all different countries to come together with their science and come up with a solution to nudge that meteor in a different path. And it wouldn't take a lot to do it, but it would take maybe a hundred hydrogen bombs, right? Get rid of all the stuck. <laughs> but it would take an enormous amount of cooperation. And I mean, these, these ideas, of course, have been around for a long time, that people, there would be peace on Earth because you know, there'd be an invasion from Mars. <laughs> you'd have to band together. So Short it's a threat that can bring human beings together. To, so it's not very positive. Well, I think global warming is such a threat. Mm -hmm. um, and there is no science yet um, on how to mitigate it. That doesn't mean that there won't be. But right now, mm -hmm. nobody has a solution or even a, a reasonable idea. I'm not really desperately worried about us. But global warming does bother me a lot. Another question, what makes you feel safe? You know, when do you feel safe? What do you need to feel safe? My freedom. The ability to uh, get up and go where I want, say what I want, and not have to look over my shoulder. I live with that, as we all do, with, with um, a kind of surveillance mm -hmm. mentality. And we uh, hope that it won't um, become an infringement. Mm -hmm.